All right, good morning. Yeah, I feel like I should be stepping up here like through a saloon with my six shooters on or something. And uh, I love it. My name's Andrew. Thanks for being here. What a joy and a blessing to be here with you to, to worship the Lord together. Uh, had an incredible time baptism uh, with baptisms uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, yeah, let's give it up for those folks who got baptized. Uh, what an amazing, amazing uh, thing that we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate folks who have put their faith in Christ. Um, so excited about that. We are in the second week of this series called 10 Words to Live By. We are jumping back into the book of Exodus to look at the Ten Commandments. And uh, I just want to say this as a reminder for those of you that were here last week or maybe you're just catching up with us. Our goal in this series is not mere memorization of the Ten Commandments, though I hope you do uh, memorize them if you don't have them already memorized. Uh, the goal isn't mere obedience, though I hope you will obey the Ten Commandments. The goal, really, of the series is, is a deeper obedience, a delight in obeying what God has commanded us to do. Uh, and so that is the purpose of the series. We do have books that are available for you. Uh, we're reading through this book called Ten Words to Live By by Jen Wilkin uh, that are available over here uh, on my right, your left. Uh, afterwards, if you can make a donation of $5 to help cover the cost, great. If you can't, grab a copy anyways. We'd love for you to have one. Uh, our men and women who are going to be uh, meeting for Bible study this coming week uh, are going to be using that content. We'll be in chapter one this week. So I want to encourage you, whether you're doing that with us or not, just to read through the book with us. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible study. Uh, so let me talk about this morning, allegiance. When you hear the word allegiance, what is the very first thing that comes to your mind? Anything? If you grew up in the United States of America, you, you think of the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Um, can I tell you a, a really silly story that I decided this morning to share with y'all? Because literally when I think of the word allegiance, I have an image that comes to mind. When I was a teenage guy uh, in our youth group, I didn't grow up going to church, but uh, my senior year I came to Christ and started going to this church and was in a youth group and we were in Ohio. We went to this incredible um, amusement park called Cedar Point, which was like all kinds of roller coasters. Anybody ever been to Cedar Point? All right, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing park. Um, but I remember walking through with this group of teenage boys, and you know what teenage boys do when they're in public? They're looking for cute girls, right? Um, and so I remember being with these other guys, and I had this guy named Jeff who was a couple years younger than me, uh, quite a bit less mature uh, than me at this point. But he, you know, he sees, he lays eyes on this girl who he thinks is a cute young thing, and uh, she is wearing something with stars and stripes, on her, right? So maybe it was a, like a Stars and Stripes tank top or something. And like with, you know, this country boy, Jeff, with all the bravado of a 15-year-old young man was immediately like, I pledge allegiance. <laughs> it's like, bro, we need to work on this, man. If this is your pickup line, you need some help. Um, that's literally 30 years or whatever later. That's, what's, that's what comes to my mind when I think of the word Allegiance. Man, weird how things stick with you. The word allegiance means loyalty or devotion, right? So what are some things, if you think in your life, some things that you are loyal to or you've given your allegiance to? If you're married, uh, you know, maybe your spouse, your, your family, uh, hopefully you're, you're loyal to this church. This is our church, my church. Um, you know, maybe you have a, a favorite sports team, which we're not going to get into. It is uh, you know, college football's coming, so we won't go there this morning. Uh, maybe you have certain brands. Maybe you're a Ford guy or a Chevy guy. I don't know. Maybe you have brands that you're loyal to. Let me, let me give you a few that popped into my mind immediately. Brands that uh, I use a lot. Doesn't mean I support all that they do, but I just love their products. Uh, the first one, if you know these, just say them out loud. Here's the first one. Anybody can, can you figure this one out? 
Apple, I am an Apple fanboy. I remember there being a day where I thought Apple people are pretentious jerks. And, uh, and then I got an iPod Touch. That was my gateway drug years ago, um, back in, what, 2008 or something. Um, I, I do love Apple products. Um, I'm, I'm sucked into their ecosystem. Uh, this next one, see if you recognize this one. Anybody know this one? Hurley, there you go. Okay, so I was sporting some Hurley swim trunks, and, you know, you might catch me any point wearing one of my 10 or 20 or 50 Hurley hats. Uh, I do like their stuff. Uh, here's another one. This, this stumped the first crowd. Anybody know what this one is? Somebody got it. Blackstone. I love me a Blackstone griddle, y'all. Uh, over the last, uh, I don't know, six months, um, some of you are like, what is that? It's, mm, it's good. Um, Blackstone. I love their brand. I love their stuff. Uh, here, the, probably the hardest one to know what it is. This is the one. See if this one, if you can get this one. And my Yeti, if you can read. All right, I love me. I love Yeti. Are they overpriced? 100%, but I love their products. Okay, I'm always sporting my um, Yeti uh, tumbler here. I've got a backpack. I love their stuff. Um, you know, maybe you have your own brands or your own things that you're loyal to, that you've, uh, your, your, your allegiance has gone to in a sense. But this is what the first word, the first command calls us to, is undivided Allegiance, and that's today's sermon, is Undivided Allegiance. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, you can start to turn there. We'll read that together in just a moment. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, we'll be in Exodus 20. We'll read verses 1 through 3 here in just a moment. Uh, but this first word, you know, we call these Ten Commandments the Ten Words, which they were often called by uh, rabbis and God's people. Uh, the first word sets the tone for the rest of, of the nine, the, the following nine. I've heard it called uh, by one theologian the root of all the rest of them. In other words, it's kind of like the foundation. It's kind of like if you picture like a, a pyramid, the pyramids don't have roots, but you, you get the idea that it's a foundation and everything else is built upon this first word. Uh, I've also heard it called in the book we're reading, uh, the umbrella. So everything else kind of falls under, comes under this uh, first word. And so we're going to read this together. If you would, grab your Bible or stand with me without your Bible if you don't have one. Uh, we're going to read this together. We believe that the Bible is God's word. It is truth. It is life. This is how God reveals himself to us through his holy word. And so we're going to read. I'm going to read to you uh, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse number 1, and we'll wrap up in verse number 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. And Lord, this morning we just want to say thank you for the truth of your word, the, the, the gospel that you have given us, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that you know, we just celebrated through observing these baptisms, and yet, um, God, this is what you are all about. You're about redeeming and setting free, and God, you have revealed yourself to us, who you are, all that you have done for us. You have given it to us in your word. And so, God, this morning, we humble ourselves before you. Um, Lord, I don't know where folks are in this room. Maybe they've got these things memorized. They're, they've got them down cold. Maybe this is the first time um, somebody in this room is hearing the Ten Commandments. And yet, God, wherever we're at, I pray that you would help every single one of us to approach you and this time and your word with a holy reverence and a humility. God, would you speak to us? 
Would you reveal to us whatever it is that we need to see, whatever it is we need to hear? Would you open our hearts to your Holy Spirit to do uh, his work in us? God, we love you. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all have a seat? Thank you for standing with me. I want to start out this morning with the, the big idea of this whole sermon, and it's this, that God's first word, what God first calls us to, is to himself and away from every other God. God first calls us to himself and away from every other God. So when we hear this, you shall have no other gods before me, we typically hear like, get rid of all your other gods, but this is first and foremost a call to God and away from every other God. God. So let me share with you a few thoughts on this first word. The first one is this. The first word points us, this is a little wordy, but hang with me. The first word points us to the word of first importance. The first word points us to the word of first importance. Now, this is referring to a verse we're going to look at in just a couple minutes. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us what is of most importance, of first importance, is the gospel. And this is what this very first word points us to. It points us to the truth of the gospel. And so before this first word is even spoken, there's this preamble of sorts to the Ten Commandments that is given here uh, in verses 1 and 2. And I want to read you this quote from the author of this book, Jen Wilkins. She says this, The reality of a higher authority explains why the giving of the Ten Commandments doesn't actually begin with the utterance of the first commandment. It doesn't start with, you shall have no other gods before me. Instead, and I got a typo here, my apologies. Instead, it begins with a brief history lesson recalling a costly liberation and establishing who is in charge. I want to read that second part again. It, it, this begins with a brief history lesson recalling a costly liberation. In other words, I freed you from Egypt. I freed you from the house of slavery. And it establishes who is in charge. And so here's what's going on in these very first couple verses of Exodus 20. Before God ever utters a command, he answers three out of the, what we call the four questions. If, if you've been around, you've heard us talk through the four questions, I just want to give you a quick reminder. The four questions are this. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What do I do? So these are four questions that help us to keep the gospel central. We don't make it about me first. We make it about who God is, what he has done in light of who he is and what he has done. Now, who have you made me to be and what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? And what you see before God ever gives a command is he answers three out of these four questions. He says this, question one, who is God? He says, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. What, what has God done? This is what I've done, he says. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of of slavery. This is who I am. I am the Lord your God. This is what I've done. I brought you out of bondage. I brought you out of slavery, the house of slavery. Question three, who are we? This is implied here, but here's who we are, or here's who they are he's speaking to. They are the redeemed ones. They are the former captives who have now been set free from slavery. This is who they are. So God is the one who has brought them out of slavery. They are redeemed now. 
in light of that, in light of who he is, in light of what he's done, he gives the Ten Commandments. He says, now, go live accordingly. Go live according to what I have, who I am and what I have done for you. I love this. I love this. The first word of the law is a word of grace. The first word of the law is a word of grace. Most of us, if you've grown up in church or been around church any length of time, you hear the Old Testament, you go, oh, it's law, 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 a bunch of laws. And then we move in or we transition into the New Testament, and all of a sudden it's grace, 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 grace and love, right? No, no, no. Even back in the Old Testament, God has always been the same. The first word of the law before he ever gives a command is a word of grace. The word of grace is this, I have redeemed you from your slavery. I have pulled you out of bondage. I did something for you that you could never do on your own. I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the house of slavery. That verse I referenced earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it to you. You've probably heard this. You hopefully know this. I'm going to keep reminding you of this because even the Apostle Paul said, I'm going to keep reminding you of this. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He's getting ready to define for us what the gospel is. This is the gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So you know this, you've received it, you stand in it, you understand what the gospel is. But, he says, let me remind you again of what the gospel is. Here it is, verse number three. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here's what I want to remind you of, he says, the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried with your sin, for your sin, and he rose again. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the costly liberation. This is the costly deliverance that God has provided for his people. And Tim Chester, theologian, pastor, author, he says this, the law is not given as a means of redemption for God has already redeemed his people. So think about the timeline for a second. God gives the 10 commandments, right, to this nation of Israel. But what happened before that? He already brought them out of bondage and out of slavery. So God is not saying, okay, people, here's what you need to do. Follow these 10 commands and then you'll be free. Follow these 10 commands and then you will will have my favor. No, he said, I've already redeemed you. I've already set you free. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Now you can live in light of those things. Are y'all tracking with me? He says, don't do these things to please me or to find freedom. You do these things because I have already set my pleasure upon you. I have already redeemed you and set you free. Now, go live according to this. And so from the very start, before we even get into commandment number one, we see the gospel, which is in a way, it was, it was even for me, when I look back at this, it's kind of surprising. And yet at the same time, it's not because all of the scriptures point to the gospel. All of the scriptures point to the person and the work of Jesus. It all points to the grace of God that you don't deserve it, you couldn't earn it, you couldn't work your way out of bondage and slavery, and yet God has in his grace 
done all the work for you. So it doesn't start with do this, do this, do this, don't do this. It starts with what God has already, what, done. Right? Amen? This is where it starts. It starts with the truth of the gospel. So the first word points us to the word of first importance. Here's a second thought for you this morning. The first word is God saying, I am the one true God. I am the one true God. When you look back at this, this passage, verse number three, he says this, you shall have no other gods before me. This is who I am. This is what I've done. I've set you free. Now, have no other gods before me. So to worship more than one God is what we would call polytheism. Polytheism. Poly means man, theos, like theology, right? It's God. It's many gods, right? Many, uh, many gods is what polytheism uh, means. Uh, this was very common then. It's very common now. There's many world religions that still worship multiple, multiple gods. And the Israelites, the people of God, were super familiar with polytheism because they had for 400 years lived in Egypt. And so this was more natural for people to worship multiple gods than, than what we call monotheism. What do, you, what do you all think monotheism means? Not many gods, but what? One god. Monotheism. So polytheism was more natural for God's people. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, man, this wasn't natural for them. Monotheism, one God. Uh, let me tell you a little secret. This is a big theological secret that you probably don't know, but God has always been a monotheist. <laughs> he, he's not been quiet or shy. He believes there is one true God, and he very clearly declares this over and over in the scriptures. There is one God, and I am the Lord your God. And I, wanna, I want you to see some verses uh, in Isaiah. There's, there's this whole kind of passage, Isaiah 43, 44, 45, where over and over God declares that he is God and there is none like him. Isaiah 43, 10, he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. There's no other gods besides me. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He says this, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is what? No God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. If there's anyone like me, let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me. Here is the answer. There is no rock. I know not any. God over and over declares, I am the one true God. Isaiah 45, verse number five, he says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is what? No God. If you drop down to verses 21 and 22, he says over again, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is what? No other God besides me. 
a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is what? No other. There is no other God. God didn't believe, doesn't believe in multiple, many, many gods. He believes and he declares there is one true God, and he is me. It is it is me. I am the one true God. Exodus 15. Let me take you to one more passage. Exodus 15, which was roughly 40 or 50 days uh, prior to God giving the Ten Commandments. God has brought his people through the Red Sea. He's redeemed them from the Egyptians. He's, he's dealt with God's enemies in the Red Sea. God's people sing. They, they, they sing what's called the Song of Moses. They're so, so excited. They're celebrating what God has done. And in their celebration, in their singing, they say this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you, O Lord? This is what we call a rhetorical question. What is the answer? Who is like you, O Lord? What's the answer? No one. There's nobody like you. There is no one besides you, God. You are the only one who is majestic in holiness, who is awesome in glorious deeds, who does wonders. You stand alone. It is you. You are the one true God. Anything else, any, anything else other than this one true God is, is a lowercase g God. It's an imitation God. It is a false God. It is a generic God. It is, in today's vernacular, it, this, those are great value gods. Y'all know what I'm talking about? No shame if you purchase great value. We're all about that stuff. But these, this is not the genuine article. These are false gods. These are other lowercase g gods. He is the one true God. And this is so important to note from the very start because failure to, to obey this command throughout the Bible goes by a name. I don't know if you, you know this word. The word is idolatry. Idolatry. This isn't just an Old Testament concept or term. This is a, a, a New Testament. This is a throughout time concept. No other God's before me. This is called idolatry, and that language of idolatry permeates all of the pages of, of Scripture. In fact, the old reformer John Calvin famously said this, the human heart is a factory of, uh, is a, a factory of idols. It's, our human heart is, a, is an idol factory. In other words, our heart is always looking for something to worship, always looking for something to idolize, always setting something up um, beside the Lord. The human heart is a, a factory of idols. So what we see here, we see that the first word points us to the word of first importance, to the gospel. The first word is, is God saying, I am the one true God. And here is the third thought that I want to talk about this morning is the, the first word is God saying this, I must be, I don't want to just be the one true God. I must be your one and only God. I must be your one and only God, set apart by myself. You worship me alone. So 
this, this is maybe helpful. I don't know if we always think about this, but you know, in the Bible we see, we see commands given, right? Whenever you see a command given, you can just mark this down. You can know this, that the reason a command is given is because our propensity, our tendency is to do the exact opposite, right? It, it gives us a command because our tendency is to do the opposite. He, he, doesn't, he wouldn't have to tell us to have no other gods before him if that wasn't our propensity to worship other things. And so we were created to worship, but our tendency is to worship more than just God. We are what the, the, the old uh, hymn, Come Thou Fount, declares. We are prone to wonder, right? We are prone to wonder, to worship other things. Jen Wilkin in her book, she made this point that really kind of hit me between the eyes. I thought this was such a powerful Uh, word that she shares here. She says this, the repeated refrain, this is talking about Israel and their history, the repeated refrain on idolatry throughout Israel's history will not be that she ceases worship of God entirely, but that she ceases worship of God alone. I want to read that again. The repeated refrain on idolatry throughout Israel's history will not be that she ceases worship of God entirely, but that she ceases worship of God alone. In other words, we were created for, for a single, like single-minded allegiance, to be loyal to one, and yet we tend to live with dual allegiances, with dual allegiances. Not that we like put God aside, but we we add to God. We, I, I, I worship God, but I'm also kind of worshiping this. Uh, I need God, yes, but I also need fill in the blank, right? A dual allegiance. It's what Jen Wilkin in the book calls both and living. I need both God and this. I don't, I'm not replacing God. Rather, I'm adding something alongside of of him. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. That, that phrase, before me, it could be translated literally, uh, before my face, which means God is saying, I don't want you to have any other gods before my face, in my sight. And you all know what God sees? God sees everything. He says, I don't want any other gods before my face. Another way that it could be translated, at least one other translation of the Bible uses this term. It says, you shall have no other gods beside me. No other God besides me. So the, the, kind of the, the picture that popped up into my mind, I don't know if this will help you or not. I thought of like the Olympic uh, podium, like the medal stand. You all know what I'm talking about? I think in 2024, I think we're having the Olympics again. Uh, I've lost track after 2020. Uh, but you know how it works? You know, the, the, the gold medal and the you know, gold, silver, bronze medalists take the podium. And, uh, you know, you got the gold medalist, first place, who stands up high in that center position. They're on the podium, right? They, they got the gold draped around their neck. And then you have the silver who, like, obviously that's, that's a very incredible achievement, but they're like, eh, they're a step down, but they're still on the podium, right? They still placed, they got a medal. And then you have bronze, and we all feel bad for bronze because you're third place, uh, you're, sec- you're second loser, right? Um, but you're on the podium, you want, like, so I, I, this is the picture that comes to mind that, that God says, like, listen, 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 listen. I want to be on the stand alone, 
I don't want anybody else beside me. We tend to go, well, as long as God is first place in my life, that's what matters. God says, no, no, I want to be first and only. I don't want anybody in second place. I don't want somebody in third place just coming slightly behind me. No, no, no. I want to stand on the podium. I want to stand alone in your heart and in your life. I want to be your one and only God. No other idols. This is what he is declaring here. I must be your one and only God. And so how do we live in light of this? How do we live in light of this? Because most of us probably, we, we, don't, we don't think of, we don't subscribe to a literal polytheism. Like I should, you know, worship multiple gods. We don't worship like God of heaven and the sun God or the God of fertility. Like this isn't our culture necessarily. So how do we live in light of this? You shall have no other gods before me. We do tend to live with practical polytheism that we worship God along with other things. So what do we do with with our idols? What do we do with those things in our life that, if we're being honest, constantly are competing with the God that we know and love and worship? Here's what Paul tells us that we have to do, that the way that we are to deal with, with idols. Colossians 3, verse 5, and this sounds pretty extreme, but here is what Paul says we do to remove idols. We have to put them to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he mentions things that we would describe as sinful things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Idolatry. He's kind of even jumping ahead, even to the connecting this to the 10th word or 10th commandment, but he says, put to death all these things. These are the underlying things, the idols of your heart. Put these things to death. And so how do we, how do we put these things to death in our life? And, and I just want to talk a few minutes just practically about, about this. You know, one of the ways that, that, that we talk about uh, worshiping God, uh, I often use, and this is old school, hopefully you know this, maybe you don't, I can't get away from it, the three T's. Y'all know what the three T's are? Time. Can anybody fill in the next one? You got the answer on the screen now. Talent. <laughs> And treasure, time, talent, treasure, time. What do you give your time to? What do, you, what do you give your talents, your skills, your abilities, your spiritual gifts? What do you give your, how do you, do you worship God with your skills and your talents and your, your spiritual gifts? What do you give your treasure to? This is speaking to our financial resources, our money. What do we give our money to? Uh, we, we talk about serving the Lord with our time and, and with our talent and with our treasure. Um, and, I, and I think that's so helpful. But, but I want you to think about this. Uh, I want you to just take a second and think about this statement. Anything that you give your time, your talent, and your treasure to all have the potential to be a god or an idol in your life. Anything that you give your time, your talent, or your treasure to, in any measure, whether a little bit or a lot, if you give your time to it, it has potential to be a god to you, for you to worship it. If you give your talent, your ability, your skills to it, it has the potential to be an idol for you. If you give money or your, your treasure, resources to it, it has the potential to become an idol for you. And so th this doesn't just mean evil things or sinful things. This even includes good things. Because good things can easily become god things. Or as 
Tim Keller used to say, good things can become ultimate things, things that we are good, and yet, man, we, we put them on a pedestal, and we, we worship these things. And so I don't have an answer how to kill every idol in your life, but let, let me give you a, a starting point to identify your idols. Start with, I would say this, start with asking God the question, God, are there any idols in my life? Are there any gods or are there any allegiances in my life other than you? God, would you reveal that to me? We've got to start with asking God. But then I would, I would encourage you to do something really practical. And this might be an interesting exercise for you, is to sit down with, with a journal or with a piece of paper and, and begin to list out the things that you spend a lot of your time on, things that you, you give your talent, your abilities to, and things that you spend your money on. Time, talent, treasure. How do you spend your time and your talent and your treasure? What do you give, what do you give those things to in your life? And begin to, to ask the question, God, are any of these things, whether they're evil things or sinful things or good things, is there, are there ways in which in my heart I am allowing these things to be like a dual allegiance. I am worshiping these things alongside of you. And so let me give you an example. Let me give you a, a, a really personal example. Um, when I think about for me, and I know this isn't going to apply to everybody in the room, but I want to just give you an example. Um, for me, I think about, okay, there, there is one area of my life where I give probably a, a, most of my time and my talent and treasure to. You all know what it is? Ta-da, it's this, it's, it's my work, it's my job, it's my role as a, as a pastor. And you'd be like, well, that's a good thing. Well, some of you think it's a good thing. <laughs> some of you are like, please stop doing that. Um, but this is where I, I give, like, my time. Do I give my time to, to my job, to the work of the ministry? 100%. 100%. I, I don't have a clock in, a clock out time. Uh, my life is, is, is my work. Uh, and I love what I do. I love what I get to do. I 100% give my time to this. Do I give my talents to this? Um, that's debatable for some of you. But, like, this, y'all, this is all I got, all right? I couldn't do much else other than this, all right? So I, I'm, I'm kind of bound to this role. It's the only thing I do halfway good. Uh, so yes, I absolutely give my talent to my work, um, my, my treasure. This is a funny one for me because it's like my treasure, my finances comes from the church and then it goes right back to the church, right? I, I give, I'm paid by the church, but then I also give to the church. And so like, yeah, my treasure is wrapped up in this place. Um, I love this. I love what I, I get to do. And yet... As, as good of a thing as this is, as good a, a, of a position and a role and a, and, a, and a thing that I get to do in my life, my work and my position, what I do, can become an idol in my life. I can worship this role and my position and my work and what I, what I do. I can begin to find uh, my identity in being a pastor over being a son of God. That, that can become something that I, 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 I bow at this, this altar. I worship this role that I get to play. And I can begin to even use my gifts in a way that uh, garner the applause of, of people. So I can serve people, but I can, I can inwardly, and y'all might not ever be able to recognize it, but in my heart, I'm doing this because, man, I want people to applaud me or think that I'm great, or because I want to feel needed or important. And so you see how even, even a good thing can become an idol in our lives. I can begin to think I'm responsible for things that only God can do. 
I can feel like I'm above suffering or struggle because God, you owe me, right? I'm serving you. I'm serving your church. And so God, why would you let this happen? Like, so all of these things, when I look at the things that I give my time and my talent and my treasure to, I, be, I, I should, I ought to, and we all ought to constantly, vigilantly say, God, is, are the things that I'm giving my time to, are the things that I'm giving my talent to, are the things I'm giving my treasure to, are those things on the podium alongside of you? Am I elevating these things to a place of, of being an idol in my life? That if I lost this, if you were to take away this, God, I'd be done because this is my whole world. Is there anything in your life like that? If so, it's an idol. Bad thing or good thing? So here's what I would encourage you in this exercise. Begin to think of these three areas for yourself. I can't tell you what's an idol in your life. I can't tell you um, what it might be or even how to kill it. But to begin to identify these things and allow God to do his work in us by his spirit, by his grace, this is a starting point for us. So time, you know, maybe you give a lot of your time to your family. Your family can become an idol. Your work can become an idol. Video games, I don't know what you spend your time on, a hobby, um, a person can become an idol. All of these things that are, are, are good things can become an idol. Talents, you may give a lot of your time to working. You may give a lot of your time to making money because you're good at it. You may spend a lot of your energy uh, in a sport or a hobby or even serving. Serving is such a good thing, serving God and others. But sometimes we, we serve because we find worth or identity in that approval from others. I don't, what do you spend your treasure on? Where do you spend your money? A lot of people spend their money on, your, on, on themselves and on pleasure. Uh, obviously, that's an idol. You can spend money. You can be so obsessed with saving and, and, and becoming rich that that becomes an idol. Uh, giving, even again, as good of a thing as giving is, giving can become an idol. If you give in order to get validation or to feel good or to find power, all of these things, listen, we're not even talking about bad things. We're not even talking about sinful things. We're talking about good things that if they become God things, they're idols in our life. When we put them beside God, when we put them on the podium beside God, they become idols. And what did Paul say we need to do with idols? They must be put to death. Idols must be put to death. So some behaviors, if they're sinful, obviously we need to kill those things. But you might ask, okay, so what if it's a good thing in my life? It's a good thing in my life that's become an idol. What do I do with it? Do I, if my kids are an idol in my life, do I put them to death? No, <laughs> please, no. Don't understand, misunderstand me, all right? So even the good things in our life, we don't have to necessarily put those to death, but we have to put the idolatry behind those behaviors to death. And so I can't identify for you. I can maybe look at your life and go, mm, this, is this an idol? Could this be an idol in your life? Only you and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, can identify idols in your heart and in your life. Um, and, and only he and this community can come alongside you and help you to put those things to death. But this is where we need to start. God, is there any idolatry in my life? Because you have called me first to yourself and away from every other God. You have called me to undivided 
allegiance. And so, Lord, if there is any other allegiance in my life, good or sinful, God, help me to, to see it and recognize. Help me to begin to put that to death so that you can be my one and only God. This is what he wants, our undivided allegiance. And so the question this morning is, does he have yours? And again, I know there's always going to be these things that pop up and tempt us to put our affections uh, towards them. But this is a constant. We must be vigilant about this. Is, is, is there any other allegiance in my life? And so I want to end with this, this thought. You know, Jesus when in, his, in the Lord's Prayer, he introduced us to this really powerful, bold, like audacious prayer. He said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Y'all remember when he said that? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so I just want to think about this phrase for a second. Because there is the truth, the reality that one day when we all come into the presence of, of Jesus, that we won't need this first word anymore, Right? There will be no other temptations. There will be no other opportunity for idols to draw away our affection and our allegiance. One day, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, one day, you don't, you don't have to, we don't have to worry about this. We will have one true God. We will have one and only God that we will worship. But the prayer of Jesus was this. Pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth earth, here on earth, here and now, as it one day will be in heaven. And so y'all, why, 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 why should we wait until that day when we can, by God's grace and by his spirit today, begin to live in such a way on earth as it is in heaven that we would begin to put to death the idols in our heart and in our life. This is what God calls us to, by his grace with the Spirit's help, we can do that very thing. Undivided allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me. And this morning, God, we just want to say thank you for the reality that you have come to rescue and redeem us. God, this is a work that you have done. This is not a work that we could ever accomplish on our own, but by your grace, you have done this for us. And God, because you have done this, because you have provided redemption and salvation and freedom and forgiveness, you have provided for us your Holy Spirit. God, by your grace, we can begin to allow you to put to death the idols of our heart. And so God, I just thank you that um, this is a work that you can do, that you have called us to. God, that you don't call us to things that aren't possible. But God, what you do call us to are only possible through you and your spirit by your grace. And so this morning, Lord, I just pray for every person in this room. God, maybe there's somebody in this room who has never, ever put their faith in you. God, they've lived a life full of many, many allegiances, many, many loyalties, many, many gods. And God, maybe the reason they're even here this morning is because none of those gods can deliver. None of those gods can satisfy. And so God, maybe you have somebody in this room right now to hear the truth that there is one true God. 
a God who saves, a God who redeems, a God who forgives, a God who is gracious. So God, if there is one like that in this room today, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that they would bow the the knee of their heart to you today, that they would submit themselves to you. And God, for every single one of us that know you as Lord and Savior, God, you have called us to an undivided allegiance. And God, you know what we're made of. You walk this earth in the flesh. You understand everything that we experience. And you know the struggle that we face to make you our one and only God. You know the things, even now, God, even if we have a hard time putting our finger on it, you know the things, the circumstances, the situations, the people, God, that we have allowed to take the podium alongside of you. And God, this morning, we would just ask that you would help us to put away every idol of our heart, that we would put everything in its rightful place, that we would have no other gods before you, besides you. God, you are the one who can do this work. And so, God, we ask that you would help us in this. By your grace, by your spirit, would you root out the idols and help us to worship you and you alone. May Christ be the only one who is exalted and magnified in our life. We pray in Jesus' name.